0: Feel free to sit down. We can, we can uh, reverently listen to God's word either in either posture. Uh, but turn with me to Matthew, chapter 22, our scripture reading, our sermon text, starting in verse 34, reading through verse 40. Listen carefully as I read God's word to you. <clears throat> but when the Pharisees heard that he, he is Jesus, of course, when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Amen. Be seated. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are a speaking God. Uh, Lord, you, you weren't obliged in any way to speak uh, to us. Um, you could have left us to our own devices and just uh, allowed uh, natural revelation to speak to us, the creation, as it were. And yet you have given us spe- special revelation. You have given us uh your mind in the scriptures, your will in the scriptures. Uh, You have described yourself, the way of salvation. Um, You have described uh, your uh, requirements for uh, your creatures, for mankind, in terms of your law and your commandments. We thank you for this. We thank you for this portion of your word, um, that you are the author of this. Yes, it was through Matthew's quill that these words came to us, but it was you speaking to us as well as Matthew, and therefore this word is holy, it is without error in the original language in which it was given to us, and therefore uh, and it remains to us your word uh, in this uh, in in modern translations which are faithful to the original text. Would you please? Speak to us afresh, Lord Jesus. Please assume your office as the great prophet of the church and speak through me, your instrument. Forbid that I should say anything that is contrary to what is true, what is in accordance with the meaning of this text or any other that I might cite. And would you please speak to us, your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, have you ever? um, Kids, do I have all eyes up here? All you kids, where everybody's looking. I hope. Hey, Um, have you ever had somebody ask you? And you may not have had this, but maybe you have. Uh, I know I have uh, at different times in my life, even as an adult. But have you ever had somebody ask you to sum up something in one word? I'll give you a couple examples, okay? Um, perhaps you uh, had a very fun day and did a bunch of stuff, maybe with one of your parents, let's say. Um, let's say it was your mommy and you did a bunch of fun stuff during the day. You went places, you ate some good food, you went to the park, you, you played games, uh, you built a fort in the backyard or played with your dollies or whatever. Uh, and you just had a wonderful day and then your daddy comes home Uh, And he sees this big smile on your face. And uh, he says, Wow, it looks like you had a really good day. And you go, Yes, Daddy, I did. And then maybe, maybe, just maybe, he said, Well, could you sum up in one word what your day was like? Now, maybe that's not happened to you, okay? But just you can imagine that maybe it, it happened to you, and maybe it has. Sum up for me in one word, or describe for me in one word what your day was like, and then you tell him, Great. Or um uh you know fun or whatever. Okay? But he wants one word, so you give him one word. Or maybe uh you came into the house and you were upset you about something. Something had happened outside, maybe with a friend, or maybe maybe you uh stepped on a uh something that was hurt your foot or whatever, and you had a look, a troubled look on your face. And uh, your mom said to you, uh, tell me what's wrong. Maybe you're crying. And uh, your mom says, tell me what's wrong. Give me one word to describe what you're feeling right now. And you say, angry or uh, sad or whatever. So these are just examples. So maybe you've not had that uh, done to you. Uh, Sooner or later, you probably will in your life uh, by someone, parent or spouse or whatever. But, Jesus, in this passage that we're looking at, children, right now, essentially is summing up something with one word, in effect. He's summing up all that God requires of us in terms of things that we are to do or not to do in essentially one word, and that is love. He says, what I require of you uh, as my child is Love. Love for me. You're supposed, we're supposed to love God. And we're supposed to love others. But love is really the one-word summary of what God requires of you and me as his people, as his children. And we're going to see that in this passage. And love is the overall uh, requirement. And then there are two major elements of that. And I just mentioned them to you, children. We're to love God. And we're to love others. Which won't surprise you. Those are the two points of the sermon. Before I get to that, uh, I want to uh, say something by way of introduction, and that is I want to uh, read for you... I didn't bring it up here. I thought I did. That's all right. I think I can uh, give you the answers anyway. Uh, Some catechism questions. Um, In catechism question 39, I'm talking about the shorter catechism now, it says, What is the duty... Which God requires of man? And the answer is, the duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. Okay? And, uh, the, the framers of the, uh, confession, the catechisms used, among other texts, 1 John 5, 3. I won't turn there, but to prove that that is what God wants from us. We are to keep his commandments, essentially. Uh, We are to love God by keeping his commandments, uh, 1 John 5, 2 uh, essentially teaches. The next question, question 40, says this. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? And the catechism answer is the rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. Okay, and they use... Romans, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, which speaks about the conscience and the, the law being written upon the heart of all men, that God creates men that way, uh, that, as the, uh, as one of the proof texts to, to defend that that's in fact what God requires, or at first revealed to man for his obedience, the moral law, uh, written on the conscience. Um, then verses, uh, then question, uh, the next question says, where is the moral law summarily comprehended? Where is the what is the sum, or where is it uh, uh, summarily comprehended? Uh, and the answer is the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, and Deuteronomy four thirteen and Matthew nineteen verses sixteen through nineteen are are, uh, are cited there. I won't bother to read uh, Matthew, uh, fifth, but you can Matthew nineteen sixteen to 19 as proof text for that. And then it says, in the next question of the Shorter Catechism, what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? And uh, many of you know this, but the scripture passage of the answer is the sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, uh, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Okay, That's the answer. And the proof text that the Westminster Assembly used to defend that answer that the sum of the Ten Commandments is found in those two commandments is the text before us today, Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, that the sum of the Ten Commandments is these two commandments that Jesus mentions here in this text. Which brings me to the two points. So the first point that uh, is made in this passage uh, is this: "Your whole duty toward God is summed up by the greatest commandment in the law." And secondly, this passage teaches us that your whole duty toward your fellow man is summed up by the second commandment, the second greatest commandment in the law. So your duty, your whole duty toward God is summed up in the first greatest, first, or the greatest commandment, and your whole duty to your fellow man is summed up by the second greatest commandment, which Jesus, of course, uh, cites in this passage. So first, your whole duty, mine, our whole duty as Christians, uh, toward God is summed up by the greatest commandment in the law. Now before I get to that commandment, I want to just remind you about some of the circumstances that, uh, preceded uh, this uh, conversation, should we say, or this dialogue between Jesus and this uh, Pharisee, uh, Pharisee lawyer. So it is Tuesday again. It's still Tuesday. A lot happened on Tuesday of uh, Jesus, the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, Jesus and his disciples earlier in the day had traveled up to Jerusalem from Bethany, where they had spent the previous night. Uh, and Jesus is in the temple, uh, uh, the courtyards of the temple, the temple precinct. He and his disciples are there, uh, and Jesus is walking around the temple. And while he's strolling around the temple complex, he is confronted by representatives of the religious council, which is the Sanhedrin. Uh, Most of you know that. Uh, Specifically, uh, Mark tells us a little bit more about who, who they were that spoke to Jesus. <clears throat> on that occasion, he mentions the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people, which were all segments of the Sanhedrin or uh, um, uh, parties that comprised the Sanhedrin or the, the religious, the ruling religious council. Uh, so when he's confronted by these men. And after unsuccessfully trying to get Jesus to tell them by what authority he was saying and doing the things that he has been doing over the course of his ministry, representatives of two of the major factions on the council, that is the uh, the Pharisees, there we go, and the Sadducees, um, representatives of those two factions then proceed to ask Jesus some theological questions which they anticipate when he answers those questions that they pose to him will discredit him in the eyes of the people or get him in trouble with the Roman authorities or both, hopefully both. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to uh, have him done away with, as it were, and with Rome's help and the help of the people, the populace. So they try to, try to uh, with two questions. The first question that they ask, and this is posed by the Pharisees and um, supporters of the secular ruler Herod Antipas, called the Herodians, uh, they come up to Jesus with, with this first question, as and which was whether or not it was um, uh, the 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 law of Moses allowed Jews to pay the Roman poll tax, um, whether or not that was appropriate for a a religious Jew to do or not, and um, Jesus brilliantly escapes this trap. Uh, with the answer that he gives. And I, I, you know, most of you know that. We're here for that. Uh, and I won't bother to go into that right now. But he, he, he dodges that, that trap brilliantly. That They're trying to uh, get him in by asking that question. Well, then, then, after the failure of the Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, a second question is asked by the Sadducees. Another party the theological liberals of their day. And they approached Jesus, and they asked the second question, which was designed basically to undermine Jesus' own teaching, namely that there is an afterlife, which the Sadducees didn't believe in, and also that there is a resurrection of the body uh, for those who die, which, again, the Sadducees did not believe in. But they, per- they pretend as if it's true and ask him the question that they do in the resurrection. And he goes on uh, with that uh, fabricated tale about a woman who had all these husbands. Well, Jesus, once again, his enemies are confounded by what he says. They totally, he totally destroys their, uh, their attempts to undermine him. And having foiled that question by the Pharisees to discredit him, he now is once again approached by a representative of the Pharisees. Specifically by a lawyer, we are told, or a law expert, an expert in the law of Moses, one who had, <clears throat> has carefully studied that law, probably memorized most, if not all of it, and is highly skilled in interpreting the Mosaic law and, and applying it, um, not always rightly, uh, to circumstances that, uh, a religious Jew might, uh, be, uh, encounter, uh, in his, in his life. And so a lawyer, a Pharisaic lawyer, approaches with the question. The question he asks there is verse verse 36. Teacher, he's trying to test him. But we're also told in Mark's Gospel that he isn't entirely unfriendly to Jesus, unlike the previous uh, inquirers were. He's actually um, kind of interested in um, what Jesus has to say, not just to trip him up, although he's sent to trip him up. And he asks, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? meaning the greatest commandment by saying the great commandment. And that's how it's uh, written in Mark, I believe, in Mark's account. At any rate, he asked this question. And this kind of question, what is the greatest commandment in the law, is one that you would expect from a Pharisaic uh, expert in the law. He wants to know. It makes sense that he would ask a question like this. You see, the uh, rabbis over the centuries had identified in uh, the law of Moses, 613 distinct laws. Actually, in the in the whole law, uh, 613 distinct laws. 248 of them were positive laws, you shalls, in other words. And 365 of them were you shall nots. Uh, and if you add that up, you get 613, I believe. Yes. Uh, <laughs> at any rate... Um a law, expert, a law expert like this uh, Pharisee loved, they loved to engage in lengthy debates about uh, the importance of one commandment relative to that of another. Uh, legalistic hair splitting was kind of in their DNA, if you will, uh, because of their training. Um, and they loved these kinds of interactions. And so it makes perfect sense that with this kind of training and this kind of life experience, this man would ask this question. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus identifies it by citing Deuteronomy 6, 5. Which I'll read, uh, rather than turn to there, I'll just read uh, 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 Jesus' version of that, because there are a couple of different slight variations on that. And he says, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God. This is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your heart. Mind, and so this is the greatest commandment that we can obey and so we need to as Christians who have been saved by God and who have been made his children we are to obey him by loving him this way it's your job description as a Christian mine Let's, let's unpack it a little bit. He says, you are to love the Lord. By that he means Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Not the God of the Muslim. Allah is not Yahweh. Not the God of the pantheist, who isn't personal and inhabits the rocks and the caterpillars and the ocean. Not the god of the Mormon, who is just one of uh, an infinite number of gods, who happens to be the god of this solar system, they say. Not the god of Kenneth Copeland, who is a genie in a lamp that you rub and say, do this for me and do that for me. Those are all false gods. And I could name others, of course, and you could as well. No, the god that you and I are to love is Yahweh, the the God of the Bible, who alone is God. There's not Yahweh plus other gods, like the Mormons teach. There's only one God. It's Yahweh, the one, the one who is one God in three persons, who is, to cite the Shorter Catechism, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, and truth. It's a great summary of who God is and what God is like. Let me say it again. Who is infinite, eternal, and changeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He's infinite. He's, uh, unchanging. And he's eternal in all those respects. That's the God you are required, and I am required, to love. So we're to love the Lord. And this Lord, whom you are required to love, needs to be your God. Now, there's a sense in which God is everyone's God as the maker of everyone. There is that sense. But he doesn't mean that here when he says, uh, when Moses said this, or when Jesus, citing Moses, said this, or when God wrote this, penned this through Moses' hands. When he says, love the Lord, your God, he means your in a specific way. He means you are to love One whom you have personally taken as your God by uh, by an act of your will, if you will, as you are to love him as one whom you have given your allegiance to and your life to. He is your master, in other words, and you are his servant. That was what it, it means in many ways, to be a Christian. Yes, he's your father and you're his child, but where there's also the the master-servant um, comparison also is very apt. And that's the God that you are to love and that I am to love. And the only way, the only way a sinner, which is all of us, there's no one of us who isn't, the only way that a sinner can have the God of the Bible, Yahweh, as his God, is if he has been forgiven by and reconciled to that triune God of the Bible. And the only way that a sinner can and will be forgiven by and reconciled to that God is if he trusts in God the Son, that is, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ and trust in Him alone to purchase that forgiveness and that reconciliation with God. That's the only way you will have Him in as your God in the way that Moses and Jesus are using uh, the word "your." There. So, do you have Jesus? Have you taken God that way by having Jesus as your? Savior, the one who rescues you from the hell that you deserve. Do you have Jesus that way? Are you trusting in him that way? And trusting in him alone, not your good works. If you're trusting in anything other than uh, Jesus plus something else, you're not trusting in Jesus. Do you have him that way? Have you owned him that way? If you haven't, do so now. So you love the Lord... He needs to be your God, and you need to love him in a certain way, and that is described as with all your heart, soul, and mind. Uh, Mark adds strength, which is actually also back in the original uh, Hebrew, Deuteronomy 6.5. They all essentially work to get the same point across. Uh, When God, uh, in this passage, when Jesus, citing this passage, God in Deuteronomy 6, uses the word heart, soul, mind, and even the word strength, he is not identifying, by using those terms, different parts of man, of a man, of a person. He's not saying, well, a person is comprised of these three or four different parts. No. What he's doing is, is he is using using those terms, um, he is identifying different ways of thinking of the whole person as he relates to God. That's what he's doing by using those terms. He's thinking of the whole person. So... What he is telling you and me when he says this, gives us this command to do, uh, what he's telling us to do when he tells us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is to love him with the entirety of our being, of who we are. All that we are as his creatures, we are to love him with all of it. And we are not to do so half-heartedly but with everything that we have. Notice the all's there. He repeats three times. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And Mark says, with all your strength. That's how you are to love him. With your, the entirety of your being. Think about that. The entirety. Everything. The f- full measure of your being. And you are to love him this is not mentioned, but we're, we're not using the, the terms here. I'm not using these terms uh, the way the Bible does, but I'm using them my way, uh, the way we do in modern uh, English. You have to love him with your body, first and foremost. It doesn't mention body here, but again, this, these are terms that are heaped up to say the entirety of your being. So you are to love him with your body. I am to love him uh, with my body. This means using whatever health you have, whatever <clears throat> excuse me, strength that you have, physical strength, whatever energy you have, whatever talents, physical abilities, talents or gifts that you have, um, to serve and to honor God. You are to use your body that way, and vigorously so. So you young people that are here in the room who are characterized by youth and vigor, unlike uh, some of the rest of us, um, You could use your strength that you have as a young person, your energy and so on, your stamina, your coordination um, that you have, and you can use that, just by way of an example here, uh, by participating in a sport of some sort and then dedicating your efforts in that sport, your involvement in that sport, to God. I I remember when I first heard that dedicate your, your, you know, when you take your tests in school. I'm thinking back in college now when I first became a Christian, I heard people say this, well, dedicate your testing, your taking of that test to the Lord. And I was like, what? What What does that mean? It means to do what you're doing, uh, whatever it is, uh, as long as it's legitimate behavior, to do it in a way that honors God, where you're trusting in God, you're giving thanks to God when he gives you success, you are asking God for the grace to do whatever you're doing well that you are to do it in a way that sets a good example for others. These are ways in which you do a sport, say, for the Lord. So, some of you like basketball. Play basketball for the Lord. Dedicate your, your, uh, your talents and your skills there uh, out on the court for the Lord. Uh, horseback riding. I have some horseback riders in this uh, 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 room here, my own children, and perhaps others. You can dedicate that to the Lord. It's a physical ability. It's a great talent to be able to do that. I certainly can't do it the way my daughters can. Uh, running. Gymnastics. I mean, the list goes on and on. That's something that you young people can do. Your your schoolwork is another example, although that doesn't involve your body so much as your mind, but it involves your body somewhat as well, I suppose. Those of you who have strong backs, and that's not just young people, uh, but some of you have strong backs, you could use your physical strength uh, to help somebody move. Uh, who needs move, to be moved? You know, sometimes people in our congregation, or other Christians, or even non-Christians, as a as a way of serving them, you know, help help haul the couch out to the moving van, you know, that kind of thing. There's, and that's a way of honoring God in the process by uh, serving others. So we're to use our bodies and to give our bodies, as it were, dedicate our bodies to uh, loving God. We are to use our intellect. So. You do this by earnestly pursuing an ever deeper knowledge of and relationship, uh, and rather understanding of God, of His ways, and of His will. That's how you love God, the Lord, your God, with all your mind. You, uh, you are to do that uh, by seeking Him earnestly. And doing so using the means that He has given. The principal means is this. Is God's own revelation of Himself and His will uh, in the Scriptures. Those are the appointed means. So, ways you can love the Lord your God with with your mental intellect, your mental powers, is by regularly doing in depth Bible study, not just reading casually the Scriptures. And there's a place for that, but reading deeply, uh, look, you know, cross referencing, using cross references. Uh, um, trying to, th- and meditating upon scriptures uh, that you are reading. Uh, that's loving God with your intellectual powers. Uh, other examples of this would be um, memorizing scripture, learning Greek or Hebrew. I'm willing to help. I am. Some of you want to do that. We'll figure it out. I can teach you. At any rate, these are ways you can love God with your intellect. You're to love God with your emotions, by allowing yourself to be deeply moved and affected by who God is and what he has done and what he has said to you. There's nothing wrong and everything good right about being emotional in your relationship with God so long as as i said this in sunday school your emotions are rooted in biblical truth about god and about his ways and his works but we are to be moved and and you know some of us uh, probably guys more so than women uh some of us struggle um to feel deeply Things to feel emotions with respect to God, and so what I would encourage you to do is, God, would you stir my affections? And pray, ask Him to do this. Uh, uh, stir whatever, stir up whatever, or give you whatever affections you lack in your relationship with Him. Whether it's feelings of love and uh, or of deep gratitude, or uh, feelings of wonder at the thought of who He is, His works, and His excellence. Pray for it. God, help me not to just be catatonic as I read your scriptures, or worship you uh, with other people. Hopefully you're not catatonic, but anyway. Um, We're to love God, not only with our body, with our intellect, with our emotions, but certainly with our will. We are to use our decision-making ability. Uh, So, we, are, we can love God with our will by repeatedly choosing to make him the highest priority in our life each day, uh, by repeatedly choosing to look to him for our sense of joy and fulfillment and purpose, and by repeatedly choosing to say, think, and do that which we know pleases him. Those are acts of the will, and we are to love him with our will as well as our mind, our intellect, and our body. And so you get the idea. All your faculties, you are to love God with all that you have in all of those ways. So do you? Do you love the Lord your God this way? With all that you have and are? I dare say, I think I know the answer for every one of us here. There's room for improvement. And that's okay. That's okay. That's the Christian life, is growing in our love for God. And loving Him more and more, and allowing Him to have more and more of us, if if I can put it that way. Well, Jesus indicates here that the whole law and the prophets, that is to say, the whole Old Testament, depend upon these two commandments. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. That is to say, he says this in verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, what he is saying there is he's referring there uh, to the Old Testament. And he's saying that all the ethical requirements contained in the Old Testament not to mention the New Testament, but you could also include the New Testament in that, certainly. All of the ethical requirements that God has of you and me can be distilled down to these two commandments. Or to put it another way, these two commandments summarize all the other commandments that God has given us in the Bible. And since the Ten Commandments also summarize all the other commandments found in the Bible, then these two that Jesus uses here must and do, in fact, summarize the Ten Commandments. The last six of the Ten Commandments summarize man's responsibility to his fellow man. And, man, and the first four commandments summarize man's responsibility to God. It's quite obvious when you read the Ten Commandments which one belongs in which category. Therefore, the commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength must be the summary of the first four of the Ten Commandments. You see that, and that's the conclusion the divines came to, and that's certainly uh, uh, perfectly um, reasonable to assume. What this means is that loving the Lord your God with all your heart in these ways, soul, mind, and strength, the way He wants to be loved? That means that loving the Lord your God requires, among other things, that you have no other gods before Him. Commandment 1. You shall love the Lord your God with, uh, uh, wait, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. There we go. You shall have no other gods before me. That is how, one of the principal ways that you love the Lord the way you're supposed to love the Lord by not having other gods before him. Other gods take many forms, don't they? We're not talking just about little statuaries, little Buddhas or uh, Shivas or whatever like the Hindus or the Buddhists have. Or even Allah, or one of the Mormon gods. Yes, those are gods, but there's a lot of other things that are gods too. Your job. Uh, things that you possess. Your, your family even. Even though that's, you know, family is very important, but you can make an idol out of your family or your family members in a way that puts that person before God. And then that person becomes an idol, be it your spouse, or your parents, or your children, or your whole family. Do you love, do you have, I should say, any other gods in your life? Do you have some gods that tend to rear their ugly heads in your life? Of course you do. I do. We need to realize and identify what those gods are lest we think that somehow they aren't gods that's one of the first things you need to do is identify the gods that tend want that you want to take god's place to you want to put first before him in your life and god will give you the grace to do that as you give ask for the wisdom to see uh, those gods and to put them to away finally and fully uh, It also means loving the Lord your God also means only worshiping him in the manner he wishes to be worshipped, which is essentially the meaning of the second commandment. We are to worship him only in ways that he uh, has prescribed in his word. That's why you don't see us doing a lot of things here in this church that some churches do. Do you happily worship God this way? Or do you wish we had a drama troupe up here? Or the liturgical dance? Which do not belong in God's worship. And he finds offensive. Do you happily worship God in this simple way that we worship God here? See, if you don't happily do that, something's wrong. Now, yes, there are variations on how to do a worship service that still fall within the regulative principle of worship. Uh, it doesn't have to be a cookie cutter like this, but it does have to only contain certain elements in it that aren't considered terribly entertaining to many people. Maybe even you. Do you happily sub- uh, submit to God's desires for the way you worship him? You are to never take his name in vain. The third commandment is another way you sh- show love to God. So there are lots of ways to take God's name in vain besides using his name explicitly in a curse. How carefully do you are you how careful are you to use God's names and also his titles and his word? How carefully are uh, carefully are you careful are you to do that reverently to speak his name always reverently his titles his word? I remember being at a worship service once when the preacher was reading the scriptures and it came to a. Uh, I've told many of you this, but it came to a uh, genealogy and he goes blah 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 blah. Surprised that lightning didn't come out of heaven and strike him dead. Should have. Never read God's word that way. How, how uh, careful are you to speak about his attributes, such as the word love? I tell my children all the time, no, you don't love ice cream. You really like ice cream, but if you say you love ice cream and then you say you love God, it cheapens the, lo- the word love when uh, used toward God. How carefully do you speak, uh, or do you speak his, about his attributes, his ordinances, the sacraments, his works, in an appropriate manner? Do you use those words appropriately? You see, that's part of keeping the third commandment, not taking God's name in vain. It's it's a um, implied in the commandment, and and then fourthly. Uh, central to loving the Lord your God is always remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do you do that? Do you remember on Saturday that Sunday is coming and make appropriate preparations? Do you, uh, do you get to bed at an early enough time so that you're well rested so you don't fall asleep in church? That's part of remembering the Sabbath day. Do you clear your schedule on Sunday so you don't have to do things other than that which is essential on Sunday? That's remembering the Sabbath day. That's loving God, folks. God is not pleased with mere outward conformity to this commandment or any other commandment. Uh, 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 Any commandment. So I might, speaking of the fourth commandment as an example, I might outwardly keep the Sabbath by not working, by not watching TV, by coming to church. But if my heart is not engaged in what I'm doing and if I am not delighting in God as I do those things, I am a Sabbath breaker. And I am not loving the Lord the way He wants to be loved. So, You won't just, it won't just be the first four of the ten commandments that you will obey if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It will also involve and you will also uh, obey the last six commandments of the ten that respect man's relationship to other human beings. Which leads me to the second point. So the whole of your duty to toward God is summed up by the greatest commandment in the law, and the whole of your duty toward your fellow man is summed up by the second greatest commandment in the law, which Jesus identifies as the uh, as what is, as Leviticus nineteen verse fifteen, which I'm just going to read here uh, in verse thirty nine. You shall love the second is like it. You shall love the Lord. Excuse me. Love your neighbor. There we go. As yourself. Notice that the commandment assumes that every person loves himself. Everybody does. You can, they can say, oh, I hate myself. It's a perverse kind of love, but everybody loves themselves ultimately. And, and, and uh, maybe uh, come out in a perverse way, uh, but everybody loves themselves. And God knows that. And he's saying, you're to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, which is a lot. What does that love look like? Love for uh, our neighbor? Well, it looks a lot like what we find uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. You know the passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not, uh, jealous. Love does not brag. Is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered and so on that is what love for your neighbor looks like and by the way that commandment is also summed up not just in 1 Corinthians 16 but in uh 1 Corinthians 13 rather but in uh, in another way is summed up by the last 6 of the 10 commandments Again, this commandment uh, to love your neighbour as yourself, as well as the previously discussed one um, concerning God, uh, this command these two commandments summarize all the other commandments found in the Bible, right? The first four covered by love the Lord your God. The last six, therefore, uh, are covered by love your neighbour as yourself. So then, loving your neighbor as yourself requires that you do, um, in sum, six different things. Found in the last six of the ten. You are to honor those whom God has providentially placed in authority over, or next to, or under you, in terms of authority relationships. You are to honor that person, as uh, indicated by the need to honor your parents. You are to honor people. That requires you to obey those who are over you and don't tell you to do something that is sinful. And it requires you to treat with respect and dignity and fairness those who may be under you. Whether you're a church leader, an employer, or a governing authority, or a policeman. Well, it's governing authority. So, that is, you are to honor people. The Sixth Commandment teaches that you and I are to do everything that we can to preserve our own life and the life of others. That's implied in thou shalt not murder. And this requires, this preserving of your own life and that of others, requires that you, for example, do what you can to promote your own health and the health of others. Lots of people, lots of Christians, abuse themselves physically by what they eat, how much they eat, how sedentary they are What have you We need to do we need to do what we can to maintain and promote life including our own and that of other people as well That's how we love our neighbor We also love our neighbor by doing everything that we can to preserve our own and our neighbor's moral and sexual purity As per the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And we are to preserve that purity in their heart and in our heart, in speech, ours and theirs, and in our behavior, ours and theirs. We are responsible, that's how we love our neighbor, by doing these things, preserving moral and sexual purity. This requires, among other things, that you dress, and I'm talking about men as well as women, dress modestly. Don't show off things that Stimulate other people uh, visually in ways that they should not be so stimulated. Requires that we refuse, uh, refrain from lustful looks. Men, I'm talking particularly to you, although you women may struggle with that too, men more typically. It also involves undoubtedly avoiding certain shows that are risque television programs, movies, videos. That's how you love your neighbor. By not, uh, among other things, turning him into an object of your uh, objectifying him or her by turning them into an object of uh, inappropriate desire you also and i we are to love our neighbors we are that means we're not to steal since the uh, this commandment falls under that uh, heading but rather instead of stealing from others we are to do what we can to further both our own and our neighbors' wealth and outward condition this means you don't take pens or paper from the office that you try to find owners of lost items that you have come across sometimes we can't do that but you make an effort to do it anyway it's the, right, it's the right thing to do. It doesn't belong to you. If you find a cell phone down at the coffee shop unattended, for example. And to love our neighbor also means we don't lie to people. But instead of lying, we are to do what we can to maintain and promote truth, as the uh, catechism puts it, between man and man. We are to be speakers of and promoters of truth. This means we are to tell the truth even when it hurts us to do so. Swear to your own hurt, the Bible tells us. It also means that we are to maintain and promote um, our own and our neighbor's good name. The commandment implies that. We are to do what we can to uh, promote another person's good name as well as their own. This means, among other things, that you are not to listen to or spread gossip or slander. Even I would suggest if it's true and you know something is true, if it hurts another person's reputation, you should keep it to yourself. Doesn't matter if it's true. If other people don't need to know that about this third party, button your lip. And finally, loving your neighbors yourself means you mustn't harbor um, inordinate desires for. You mustn't long for anything that belongs to another person. Instead, you need to be content with what you have your, your lot in life, as they used to say back in the older days. This means you must not envy or be jealous. Envy what others have or be jealous of other people. It's easy to do, isn't it? Be jealous of somebody's looks. Be jealous of somebody's job. Of their house. It's wrong. It's not loving to be jealous or envious It also means that we need uh, to be thankful. Implied in contentment is being thankful for what we have, what God has given us, and not fretting about where things may come or in the future. If things will come in the future, they will. Things we need, not necessarily what our our wish list, but what we need. See, these are all ways in which you, are and I are to love our neighbor. We are to, uh, we are to obey the commands with respect to our neighbor, which are summarized, uh, in the ten, uh, the last six of the ten commandments. And we are to, uh, express the attitudes and the behaviors described in first Corinthians 13. That's how you, and by the way, loving God, Yes, it requires that you particularly focus on the first four commandments. But it also, you love God by loving your neighbor, too. All ten of the commandments are required to love God. It's just the four deal directly with God. But you love God by telling the truth to your neighbor. And if we say we love God and keep the four, and we don't show love for our neighbor We don't love God the way we're supposed to anyway. And, of course, you and I won't even begin to be able to love God the way we should, or our fellow man the way we should, in these ways that I've articulated without God's help. You can't do it. You certainly can't do it if you're not a Christian. You can't do any of these things in a way that honors or pleases God or is helpful uh, ultimately, without being a Christian. So you gotta become a Christian. You gotta bow the knee to Christ and cry out to Him for uh, uh, mercy in faith, trusting Him to save you from hell. But even Christians, we, if we try to do this in our own strength, folks, it's just not a good thing. It doesn't work. It's hollow. At best, if we aren't trusting God and relying on God to love Him and others in these ways. God will give you the grace as you seek Him for it to love Him better and better and to love your neighbor better and better. Praise the Lord for His grace. Let's pray. Lord, well, we do thank you for your uh, grace. We thank you for... Um, the promises that you have given us that, uh, as we, uh, walk in the Spirit that you will enable us to more and more put off sin and put on righteousness, to love you, uh, better and better and, uh, more deeply, more truly, and to love our neighbors, those around us, all men, um, ever deeper and truer as well. We ask that you would give us what grace we need. We all need it, Lord. Not a one of us, uh, loves, uh as well as we should. Would you please give us increased grace this week to love you and our neighbor as we should. But we also want to include, um, prayer requests, uh, from earlier that I failed to mention. We do want to pray for Lufkin for life, uh, and their, um, Life chain that will be uh, taking place on October 25th. We pray that you would bring many out, and we pray that many would be moved uh, to a greater appreciation for life through um, through this uh, chain. We uh, pray for um, uh, the 40 days for life uh, as they continue uh, to pray and uh, uh, for this event through November 1st. We pray that you would bless those prayers and answer those prayers. And Lord, we want to pray for the PCA Church down in Lake Charles, Bethel PCA, that has suffered five inches of flooding uh, in the most recent storm. Would you please give those brothers and sisters grace uh, to bear up under the the, uh, challenge and the affliction that you have providentially given to them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, uh, before he ascended up into he- heaven, gave the uh, church uh, two ordinances uh, to be practiced uh, throughout the New Testament age until he returns again. The one, of course, is baptism, and the other is the meal before us, the Lord's Supper. The ordinance, I should say, before us, the Lord's Supper, is to be observed in remembrance of Christ uh, and his covenant. Uh, um it is a, uh, we believe, the scriptures teach that uh, the Lord's Supper, like baptism, is both a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. It is a sign. Oh, I, I was going to read the reference. I'm sorry. I just realized I, before I get into that, let me read uh, one of the uh, places where the Lord's Supper is instituted. That is Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 19. And when he had taken some bread and Given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, And so, referencing the covenant there, we believe it is a covenant, uh, a sign of the covenant, of grace, that is, it symbolizes through uh, our handling of it, my breaking of the bread, for example, um, and also through the element itself, it symbolizes the broken body and shed blood of Christ uh, in His sacrifice for our sins. So it is symbolic, but it is also more than symbolic. It is a seal. Um, we are, we believe, the Scriptures teach this Romans four eleven and elsewhere. It is a seal. Um, and that is, it is confirming something. God is confirming something in this meal to us. He is essentially confirming his covenant promises to us. Uh, and so he is doing this. Um, uh, his saying, I intend to keep all those promises I've given you in the covenant. Uh, and this meal is his way of affirming that or reaffirming that to you and to me, the partakers who are partaking rightly, that is, by faith in Christ and with faith in Christ. And because it is a sign and a seal, it is also a means of grace, not of saving grace, in the sense that it is not uh, by taking these elements you don't become a Christian, by taking these elements become forgiven, uh, although God can use... Observation of the Lord's Supper is a way to bring somebody to Christ, but I mean this uh, in the other way. It's not uh, something that the element itself doesn't save you. It uh, doesn't play any part in saving you. Um, but it is, however, a means of sanctifying grace. It is a means that God uses, God the Holy Spirit, to, uh, to work in our lives in ways that he wants to work in our lives, whether it's to strengthen our faith in him, uh, give us greater assurance of his love for us and his forgiveness of us, um, uh, strengthen our, uh, us in our ability to resist temptation, to ob- be obedient, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, in different ways, the Holy Spirit uses this meal in the lives of those who rightly partake of it. And so we need this meal. This meal, however, is not for everyone. It's certainly not for anybody that doesn't belong to, uh, an evangelical church. Uh, and it's certainly not for a, uh, 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 somebody who belongs to an evangelical church perhaps, but is not a Christian actually. Only Christians are supposed to partake of this meal. So if you're not, if you don't, if you know that you're not a Christian, please do not partake. You will only be eating and drink, drinking judgment unto yourself if you do so. It's foolhardy. Just observe and uh, ask the lord to use this uh time to work in your heart and give you a new heart in fact um so you must not partake if you're a uh if you're an unbeliever you need to be a christian you also need to be a uh, uh a baptized and communing member in good standing of uh this or some other evangelical church uh by that i mean a church that believes the gospel that as we understand the gospel. That it's Jesus alone that is the savior of sinners and it's only by putting our whole trust in him alone to save us that we are in fact saved and made forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God. It's only the Jesus of the Bible, the God-man, who can save us and as we put our trust in him. That's the evangel. That's the gospel. That's what it means to be evangelical as I'm using the term right now. You need to belong to such a church. If you don't, please do not partake. Okay? Please observe, um, because uh, uh, membership in a uh, evangelical church is the way that we elders can discern that you are in a position to take this in a way that won't harm you, and that's why we—that's uh, uh, why you need to be so. Um, you mustn't be uh, come if you're uh, under uh, belong to another church and are under discipline, or in this church, although nobody is. Um, And you mustn't come if you're cherishing some secret sins in your heart. If there's something that you know is wrong, that you're doing, you have not repented of it, but you are secretly clinging to some sin in your life, you are cherishing sin in your heart, and the Lord will not hear. And in fact, you may not be a Christian at all if you are cherishing sin in your heart. Uh, Christians repent of sin. They don't always do it right away. They sooner or later come to their senses. If there's no repentance of sin in your life, you need to to seriously consider if you're a Christian or not. This is for believers. But if you are wrestling with sin, that's a different story. I say this every time, but it needs to be said every time. If you're wrestling with sin, you're struggling with putting off some sin in your life or sins in your life, but you know they're wrong and you hate them and you want to be rid of them. Be it anger, be it lust, be it uh, deceit, be it unbelief, whatever. You don't want it in your life, and you're trying, but you had not had a very good week, let's say. That's okay. You're wrestling. You're fighting. You're engaging in the fight, and that's a sign that you're truly a Christian. You need this. You need to partake if that describes you. All right. Let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to bless our partaking of this sacrament. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the means of grace that you have given to your church, the word read and preached, uh, the sacraments, prayer, uh, obeying the Lord's day. We thank you for these. A means that you have appointed for our to be blessings to us we ask that you would now as we uh, approach your table Lord that you as the host of this table would bless us afresh through our partaking we ask that you would give us the faith to uh, lay hold of Christ afresh uh, as we partake uh, to think on him and his benefits uh, to Uh, rejoice in him to cling and love him ever more deeply, cling to him and love him ever more deeply. Would you please help us in this? And would you please set aside, Lord, now these elements from their common everyday use unto the holy purposes for which we are about to use them that we might indeed feed on Christ in our hearts with thanksgiving. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, uh, as I have done so. And he gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name, do so now to you. And, and he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. So please, as you uh, will all be served, and then we'll partake all together, so please hold off and partake until everyone is served. The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup. And having given thanks, as we've already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Again, let's wait until we're all uh, served and then we'll drink together. There are Uh, There's wine around the perimeter, and in the center for those who can in good conscience partake of the wine, there is grape juice. Uh, We would recommend the wine, though, strongly recommend the wine. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it all of you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for sealing. Covenant promises to us uh, afresh in this meal as we've partaken of it. We thank you that because you are the personification of truth, you cannot lie. You cannot promise something that you will not deliver. And how we rejoice, Lord, that our well our well being is um, secured, uh, secure because of what you have done for us and through our union with you. We thank you that um, uh, you use this, and we ask that you would, in fact, use this to make us better Christians. That is to say, better servants, better children of you, our God. Please work in our lives in ways that uh, will make us look more like our Savior uh, as time goes on. And please allow us to make progress in sanctification this very week as a result of having partaken of this meal. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself, let me try that again, now may the God of peace who brought it from the great, hold on, now may the God of peace who brought it from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen